Welcome to High Cheese. It's Friday, April 21st, 2023. And there's so much to talk about. There's so much coming at us. And it reminds me of the quickening that's referenced in the book of Revelation. And how time seems to speed up. And with all the things happening today. And everything that we're being hit with. All at once. It makes you think about where we're headed. So with that said, let's go to one of the main topics of this week, and it has to do with the debt limit that is going to be negotiated between Speaker McCarthy and the White House. Now, every year, the federal government, Congress, puts out a budget, and over the years, they've spent more than they take in in taxes. And the difference they borrow. And that over the years we've accumulated debt to the point that we're at $32 trillion right now. Dangerous level. And it was a number of years ago that the Congress imposed debt limitations. So they acknowledged years ago that there's a problem and we want to avoid problem with too much debt taken on by the federal government. So they passed a resolution that says, look... We'll give you certain caps, certain limitations on what debt you can accumulate. And if you exceed that debt, you have to come back to Congress and we'll approve a higher amount. So again, this has been done a number of times over the year to the point we now have $32 trillion in debt. And Speaker McCarthy and the Republicans that have taken over the House saying no. We're not going to approve any more debt until the White House comes back to us and tells us what they're going to cut because this is unsustainable. And the White House says, oh, we're not going to negotiate. You're either going to pass a clean resolution without any cuts or we'll just create a catastrophe according to them. So with that said, I just want to go to a clip by Speaker McCarthy. He's on CNBC. He's being interviewed by CNBC. And he kind of puts everything uh, in a proper framework. And quite frankly, I'm pleasantly surprised with McCarthy. But he's got a real challenge on his hand right now. And the Republicans have to stick with him. And at the same time, do not let him give away the House in his negotiation. Now, I don't think he will. I think he's smart enough to realize what the Republicans in Congress want. But let's go to the clip and then we'll come back and discuss Well, look, 75 days ago, February 1st, I sat down with this president. And I sat down to him and I said, let's work together to be able to deal with the debt ceiling and our economy at the same time. It's the same thing that we've done all in the past that you've mentioned. And for 75 days, he's ignored us. I want to find a responsible, sensible way to do this. My message upstairs is if the president won't pay attention to this, if he doesn't believe that he can find $1 in savings, Republicans in the next couple weeks will act and send a debt ceiling increase that will limit, save, and grow, that will help us on economics, growth in this country, will cap spending in the future, will pull back, claw back 
the money we appropriated for COVID but had sat dormant for two years. If it was appropriated to help you during COVID and you haven't spent it, it shouldn't be spent afterwards. So find the ways we can save the taxpayer money. Find a way that we can grow this economy to become less dependent upon China. Curve our spending in the future so we can curve inflation to help every family. And I think that's sensible and responsible. And we'd move the debt ceiling into the next year. If the president doesn't want to take action, we'll send this over to the Senate. So there's been silence from the White House. And this is just indicative of the White House. These people are such amateurs. They have absolutely no negotiation skills. They have an inability to negotiate. And if they had an ability to negotiate, we wouldn't have a war in Ukraine. But the people that we have in Washington, in this administration, they're a bunch of amateurs. They don't understand nuance. They don't understand numbers. They don't understand people. So they just sit tight and freeze. I can't do anything. I don't know how to negotiate. So, what does McCarthy do? He just unveiled his debt ceiling bill. And it aims to cut a big part of Biden's agenda. And again, let me just read an article from CNBC. It says, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy on Wednesday released a plan to raise the debt ceiling by $1.5 trillion for one year while attempting to repeal major components of Joe Biden's agenda. McCarthy said the bill called Limit Save Grow Act of 2023 would save American taxpayers $4.5 trillion by limiting discretionary spending, retrieving unspent pandemic-related funds, eliminating Biden's student loan forgiveness plan, and cutting funds earmarked for the Internal Revenue Service. And here's the, here's the interesting thing. And this is what Washington, up until recently, has always kind of like obfuscated on. But we see it now with Joe Biden's spending over the past two years. They have spent so much money with all these bills, with the Inflation Reduction Act, that they don't have enough time to spend it. So it's just sitting there. So a lot of these bills that they passed, oh, this year we'll spend this much money. Next year we'll spend this much money. Two years from now we'll spend this much money. So what McCarthy wants to do, he goes, all that money that you haven't spent, we're going to claw that back. We're going to claw that back. You're not going to spend it. We're going to save money by not spending that money that was passed. And he's going to eliminate money that Biden set aside for student loan forgiveness. Now, that makes sense because likely it's it's going to get shot down by the Supreme Court. So what McCarthy says, look, We'll give you $1.5 trillion in debt cap relief, but you've got to reduce spending by $4.5 trillion. And let's see where that goes. Now, I want to take you back to this interview because the mainstream media, the talking heads on CNBC, they're trying to spin this whole thing that if we don't have, if we don't pass the debt limit, if Congress doesn't increase the debt limit. We won't be able to pay our debt. We'll default on our debt. And that's an outright lie. Now, let's just look at the basic numbers here. I think in my last episode, I mentioned that we took in $2 trillion, over $2 trillion in the first half of this fiscal year in the federal government. So that extrapolates out to say, Four and a half trillion dollars for the entire year. And you know what was budgeted 
in net interest payments for this fiscal year? About $400 billion. $400 billion. That's about 10% of the tax revenue we should bring in this year. So we take in four, uh, $4 trillion and we can't find $400 billion? That's a utter nonsense. Now, what they'll have to do if this goes long-term, they'll have to furlough employees to cut expenses while they're negotiating, maybe not give all this money to, in foreign aid to countries that don't like us, maybe cut back on Ukraine. But it's an outright lie when you've got the mainstream media and these talking heads saying, oh, if we can't increase our debt, we won't be able to pay our existing debt. Out of $4 trillion in revenues you take in in a fiscal year, you can't find about $400 billion to pay your debt? Well, that's mismanagement right there if you can't do that. And the only way that we don't pay our debt, if we default on our debt, is if Janice Yellen makes an explicit decision not to pay the debt, throwing the financial markets into turmoil. That's the only way that we would default right now because we have plenty of cash coming in to pay our debt. So with that said, let me go to a clip because one of these talking heads there, she's trying to, you know, needle McCarthy and say, well, wait a second, you know, we've got to risk defaulting on our debt. So let's go to this clip and then we'll come back and discuss. But there is an appropriations committee and a budget for, the, for all of this. The fiscal year ends at the end of September. Why not deal with spending cuts and negotiate with the president there? Why, why negotiate over the debt ceiling, which is much more dangerous? It's not dangerous at all, especially when you sit down on February 1st. And remember, the budget is different than a debt ceiling. A budget resolution is not like an estate capital. The budget never even goes to the president. So it, for the president to say do a budget, that makes no sense. What you, what you want to do is sit down with a debt ceiling just as America has done. Watch. When President Biden was a senator, four times he voted to increase the debt ceiling only if it included fiscal changes. The times he voted against the debt ceiling is because he said there wasn't enough fiscal economic change. And think about it. A debt ceiling is like giving your child a credit card, and they charge the limit all the way up. Would you just raise the limit? No. You well, would sit down. Well, if it down, meant playing with America's standing at fa full faith and credit of U.S. government debt, but if, I feel if like you, you can deal with the spending in other ways, oh, which really? is totally so, legitimate. So if you just raise the debt ceiling, do you think $31 trillion of debt? The CBO has come out in the next 10 years. Do you know we'll pay 10.5? You did it three we'll times in the Trump 10, administration. As we did economic changes. We never raised the debt ceiling by but itself. But the tax cuts, that was like $2 trillion and you deficit. Know, and you know how much we're bringing in in revenue? On average, in the 50-year average in America, you bring 17% of GDP. Today, we're bringing 20. That's the only two other times in modern history in America have you ever brought 20% of GDP. So McCarthy nipped that in the bud real quick. Now this talking head says, well, Trump did it. The debt ceiling was raised under Trump. But McCarthy shot back and said, well, wait a second. Yeah, we raised it. And we also created economic stimulus by reducing taxes. Now, what happens a lot when you reduce taxes, you get short-term deficits. But the long-term economic benefit of lowering taxes rears its head several years down the road. Hence, you see us getting massive amounts of revenue in today. And a lot of that can be tied back to the tax cuts that the Trump administration passed. 
But the Biden administration doesn't want to do that. Oh, just keep on raising it. We're going to spend, spend, spend. Keep on raising it. So here's the new spin that the mainstream media and the White House is trying to spin this at. They're trying to equate, well, if we don't pay all of our bills, that's a default. So if there's a, uh, a defense contractor that uh, sends the bill to a the federal government and there's a delay in it because of the debt ceiling negotiation, oh, that's a default. Not paying your vendors is a default. No, it's not. No, it's not. I think Yellen came out about a month ago and said that, oh, well, if we don't pay all of our bills, that's the equivalent of a default. No, it's not. Try telling Wall Street that. And speaking of Yellen, why has she not come out and supplied Congress with her cash flow? How did she come to this determination that the U.S. needs to raise their debt ceiling? Now, usually what happens, you know, you do your cash flow, you're a finance guy, you, you, you do a projection on the money coming in versus the money co- coming out, going out. It's a simple task. So why hasn't Yellen provided those numbers to Congress? So we'll see on this. But just sit tight. Mainstream media, the White House, they're going to declare doomsday. Oh, this is terrible. If there is any recession, which most on Wall Street and the talking heads no is coming. It's just a question how deep this recession is going to be. They'll try to bl- blame it. Oh, no, it's on. It's because of these negotiations. They'll try to politicize it. And that's the problem I have with politics. From a finance standpoint, two plus two equals five. And I'm glad we have people in Congress right now that realize that two plus two equals four. So we shall see. It's going to be very interesting. Sit tight. Don't panic. You may see the stock market dip during these negotiations. But in the long term, we got to stop this debt. Because at some point, if we don't stop it, our debt is just going to grow and grow. It's going to become the size. Our debt service is going to become the size of the, the entire Defense Department. So we shall see. Okay, this week, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., formally announced his candidacy for the President of the United States. And listen, I'm going to play a lot of his speech because I think it's really important. And the reason I think it's important is because uh, MAGA has come to the Democratic Party. And I think the Biden administration, the people that are operating Biden's so-called re-election campaign, are disturbed by a recent poll that just came out. This is before... RFK Jr. actually made this speech. And it's a poll by Suffolk University. And what they found is that 14% of people that voted for Biden are backing RFK Jr. It's not 14% of Democrats or people that self-describe as Democrats. These are actually 14% of people who said they voted for Biden that said they will vote for RFK Jr. Right off the bat, even USA Today, which commissioned the poll, called it surprising. Again, I'm going to spend a lot of time on RFK Jr. right now. I think I mentioned that before. And like I said, it it appears that MAGA has come to the Democratic Party. Let's go to the first clip. 
and then we'll come back and discuss. To quell the rebellion. So that rebellion was in part against empire, but the spear tip of that rebellion was a fury that that the colonists had against the merger, the corrupt merger of state and corporate power. I, uh, well, I've come here today to announce my candidacy for the Democratic nomination for President of the United States. My mission over the next 18 months of this campaign and over my, throughout my presidency will be to end the corrupt merger of state and corporate power that is threatening now is threatening now to impose a new kind of corporate feudalism on our country to commoditize our children our purple mountains majesty to poison our our children and our people with with chemicals and pharmaceutical drugs to strip mine our assets to hollow out the middle class and keep us in a constant state of war I'm going to talk about lockdowns, um, and nobody wants to talk about it, I, but we need to understand, you know, I grew up at a time, most of my life was at a time that economists call the Great Prosperity. It's when the American middle class between 1945 and 75 grew to be the biggest economic engine in the, on the face of the globe. I mean, we were the economy in the globe. We made everything, and everybody looked to us, not only for goods, but for moral leadership, and we became the most powerful country in the world, unrivaled, and it was because, and we had a stable democracy with institutions that people trusted, a press that told us the truth, and um, and the destruction that, you know, everybody knows, it's an economic and political economic rule. You cannot have democracy in a society where there is high concentrations of wealth and widespread poverty. You need a middle class, or you don't get democracy. And that—that uh, that is a law. That is a law. You cannot do it. That. You cannot do it unless you have a big middle class, and we had that. Uh, but since the early 1980s, there's been a systematic attack on our middle class, and the coup de grace was a lockdown. The lockdown was the biggest shift in wealth in human history that befell our country. The, uh, the IMF and the Harvard study by Larry Summers says the cost of the lockdown to the United States was $16 trillion. The bureaucrats, you know, the bureaucracies are owned by the industries. I'm talking about, you know, NIH and EPA and CDC and FDA and uh, the, the U- and, uh, DOT at train track wreck would not have happened in East Palestine except we have a captive agency at DOT. Our food is terrible because the food companies and the pesticide companies own USDA. We're in constant wars because the military industrial complex, the big contractors own CIA. And we need to have a national conversation about this war. We need to have a mature we need to have a mature conversation that allows for nuance and that allows for complexity, and we need to do it respectfully. You know, some of the issues that have 
we need to talk about is, number one, is, is this war in the U.S. national interest? We just need to isolate that question. Is it in the U.S. national interest? And there are, you know, some of the leading panjerums of uh, most respected people in, of our national diplomats, let's say, Henry Kissinger, Jack Matlock, Larry Wilkinson, who's you know, Colin Powell's chief of staff, they all have said definitively, if you just want to ask, is it in our national interest, it is not. It is not in America's national interest to push Russia closer to China. That is a cataclysm. Number two, it's not in our national interest to do something that could involve us in a nuclear exchange with a country that has more nuclear weapons than us. And we are there because of our compassion, the Ukrainian people who have been brutalized, who have been illegally invaded, and have shown extraordinary valor and courage defending their country and defending you know, their families and their beliefs and their liberties and their independence. Things that Americans have to admire. My own son, Connor, I'm very, very proud that Connor joined the Foreign Legion and fought in the Ukraine and during the Kharkiv Offensive as a machine gunner for a special forces group. And, but I think that we need to know as Americans, and we have a right to know, what is our government's chief objective in this war. We were told initially that the objective was humanitarian. And that is a good reason to be there, a humanitarian. And what that means is trying to end the bloodshed and minimize it as much as possible. President Biden said that one of our objectives, at least, is regime change of Vladimir Putin. And this is the same strategy that did not work for, well for us in Iraq. And then uh, President Biden's Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, validated President Biden's statement by saying that our objective in the Ukraine is to exhaust and degrade the Russian army so they're incapable of having battles anywhere else in the world. Now, and indeed, many of the steps that we've taken in the Ukraine have seemed to indicate that our interest is in prolonging the war rather than shortening it. So if those are our objectives, to have regime change and exhaust the Russians, that is completely antithetical to a humanitarian mission. If we're there for a humanitarian mission, it means to reduce bloodshed and bring an end to the war quickly. If we're there to exhaust the Russians or regime change, then doesn't it mean that the Ukraine is just a pawn in a geopolitical battle between two great superpowers and that our strategy is to, is to put the flower of Ukrainian youth into an abattoir of death in order to exhaust Russia. And if that's true, then we need to know about it. If it's not true, then we need a pretty good discussion 
with the president and the secretary of defense and others to tell us exactly what are we doing there. So I think that was my longest clip that I've ever played. I think it went for a little over seven minutes. But I think it's important that we know that RFK Jr. hit upon some key points that are important to MAGA. One being the corrupt merger of big business with big government. The deep state. The Ukraine war. And the need for a strong middle class. Now, there's a rumor going around that Steve Bannon, who ran Donald Trump's campaign in 2016, is the brainchild of RFK's juniors run for the presidency. Now, he's not denying it. He's not. He's kind of been silent on it. But that's the rumor that's going around. Now, there are other people that have surrounded Trump that have said that if RFK Jr. has a strong campaign and doesn't win the nomination, that Donald Trump should consider him as a running mate in 2024. So we shall see. Now, I guess possibly the Biden campaign is hearing the footsteps, and maybe they were quite surprised about that poll that I was talking about before, because now they're suddenly coming out and saying, oh, Biden's going to announce next Tuesday. So maybe he sees an RFK Jr. threat there. Now, they're going to come after RFK Jr. strong. He's got some skeletons, and I won't even call him skeletons today, but he was addicted to drugs at some point in his life, and he's been in and out of rehab. But that's meaningless today. But again, they're going to bring it up. They're going to call him an anti-vaxxer. They're going to bring out the fact that some of the Kennedys are not with him. Some, but not all. So it really should be very, very interesting to see what happens over the next 18 months in the Democratic primary. So we shall see. In a surprising move, Fox News settled with Dominion over their defamation suit regarding the machines in the 2020 election. And the amount was a little over $700 million, which was another surprise. Now, Dominion had sued Fox News because apparently, for defamation, uh, because apparently they were saying that Fox was pushing unsubstantiated claims that Dominion was in cahoots with the Biden campaign to flip votes. And defamation suits are really, really hard to prove, which is why everybody was surprised when Fox settled. Now, I'm going to play a clip by Bill O'Reilly. And Bill O'Reilly explains why this happened. And just to paraphrase what O'Reilly says is that, look, the two main reasons why Fox settled is because the courts came in and said that Rupert Murdoch has to be deposed and has to testify at the trial. And O'Reilly says, look, you know, these super rich people, they do not want to focus on them. And all things changed when the courts came in and said, yeah, Rupert Murdoch, you're going to have to be deposed and testify. And that was one reason. Now, the other reason that O'Reilly says that Fox settled was because Murdoch does not want Trump to be the next president. And Murdoch was willing to settle so the mainstream media can have some stories saying, see, Trump was all about lying. Fox News settled because they were spreading lies and all of Trump's claims about the 2020 election are just bogus. So let's go to this clip and then we'll come back and discuss. Once Rupert Murdoch was compelled to testify in a court of law, 
everyone knew on the inside this was going to be settled. Okay? He did not want to go in there. It was a personal thing. He runs that company. What he says goes. He told his lawyers, settle it, try to get the best deal you can get. And that's why it was settled. It had nothing to do with primetime talent. It had nothing to do with vision of what the image of Fox News is. He didn't want to go, so they settled it. He's a privileged man. Right. He's a privileged man. Privileged people do not want to be in contentious situations. You know that. So well, he made I mean, the look, decision. Your reputation. He, it, that, he can certainly make it. He's in charge of it. And that's the decision that he made. But the distraction is going to influence the 2024 presidential election. And that is the big story here. Donald Trump cannot count on Fox News' support as he could in 16 and 20. That's a powerful, powerful venue to lose because Murdoch doesn't want Trump to be president again. It's as simple as that. Now, Riley was on the Chris Cuomo podcast. Now, in a related story, Fox fired Dan Bongino, a big Trump supporter. I guess Bongino was doing uh, one Saturday night show. So he was fired. So we're now seeing where Fox is going to be in 2024. And look, I still think that Trump voters watch Fox, but they watch Tucker, maybe Hannity maybe the five, but all the other content that Fox is putting out there, Trump people are just going to disregard. Now, the only concern I have is, is Murdoch going to put pressure on the people in the five, Tucker Carlson, Hannity, to turn their back on Trump? So it's going to be interesting. Now, I personally feel that Trump can win without Fox, because here's the thing that people don't understand right there. there there's so much Trump support out on the internet, there's so many podcasts like Bannon, all these podcasts that a lot of people don't even know exist. And we're talking millions and millions and millions of people that watch these podcasts on YouTube or Rumble or wherever. And this is the Trump base. Now, there are also these streaming networks that have popped up over the past few years, like Real America's Voice, The Blaze, just two examples. They're pro-Trump, they run 24-7 shows, and there's a heck of a lot of Trump supporters that are watching them rather than Fox. Now, would it be nice to have Fox with them? Yes, but there are so many Trump voters out there and so many Trump minions out there that are listening to all these YouTube channels, podcasts, and they add up. So we shall see. Now, while we're on the subject of the deep state and the out-of-control bureaucracy, I want to talk about an article that I read this week. And it had to do with, remember the 50 spies that signed a letter that said the Hunter Biden laptop was likely Russian disinformation? No, I take that back. They said it was Russian disinformation. And it was portrayed in the press as Russian disinformation. Remember that? So let me read a story here from the Daily Mail. And the headline says, Ex-acting CIA director reveals he had 50 spies sign a letter saying Hunter Biden's laptop 
was Russian disinformation to help Joe win the presidential election. Morrill was the former acting CIA director serving for two months in 2011 and four months in 2013. He retired from the CIA in September of 2013. Morrill was asked by Anthony Blinken, then a senior campaign official, to help rally former intel chiefs to say Hunter Biden's laptop was Russian disinformation. Morrill recently testified before the House Judiciary Committee and said he coordinated a letter because he wanted to help Joe Biden's electoral chances. So again, we've got the deep state operating against Donald Trump. We've got the deep state operating against you and me. And here's what gets me. You've got a high-ranking political operative in Anthony Blinken. And what kind of job does he get after Biden is elected? He gets Secretary of State, one of the most powerful positions in the federal government. And Biden gives it to a political hack. And this is the problem that we have today. We've got a merger of politics and the bureaucracy. Let's take a look at Jake Sullivan. Jake Sullivan was a major player with the Biden campaign. And he becomes the national security advisor. And this isn't this didn't happen years ago. And while we're talking about the Kennedy family, I want to bring up JFK's advisors. Let's talk about two of them. Lawrence O'Brien. Lawrence O'Brien was a top political advisor to JFK. And he was given a patronage position as the postmaster general. He wasn't given a position as secretary of state. He wasn't given the position of national security advisors if they had the position back then. And O'Brien went on to be the NBA commissioner. These people weren't interested in having lifelong careers in the bureaucracy, in the deep state. They were interested in doing their service with government and move on to other things. We don't have that today. And as RFK Jr. mentioned in his speech, I didn't play a clip about it, but JFK felt duped by the CIA during the Bay of Pigs operation. And as a result, he wanted to smash the CIA into a thousand pieces. So the point I'm trying to make here is that the CIA has always been a group of bad people. Now, RFK Jr., as well as many, many Americans feel that the CIA had something to do with the assassination of JFK. But my point is, is that the CIA and in intelligence has expanded into politics and vice versa. And that's what I find even more dangerous today. So the CIA has just grown and grown since the Kennedy assassination. And we're at the point now we've got political hacks running the agencies and political minions working in those agencies. Kenny O'Donnell was another advisor to JFK. Top advisor. He wasn't given some high-ranking position. He wasn't given a position in intelligence. He wasn't given position as the Secretary of State because that wasn't the mindset at the time. And over the years, things have been perverted. We've got perverted people with perverted mindsets running our government. We've got perverted people in our bureaucracies. And that's the big difference between today and back then. And Donald Trump, he realized it. RFK Jr. realizes it. And this is what we have to fight. The deep state, the intelligence agencies that are corrupt, not everyone, 
but those in the C-suite and the Republicans that control the House have to continue to expose this. Now, the net result, Blinken may not go to jail over this. Jake Sullivan may not go to jail over any of this. But we know, and we have to let everybody else know because our anger has to rear its head in 2024. So we shall see. And while we're on the subject of the swamp, there's an article here I want to read, and it's been flying below the radar screen, and I'm not sure if a lot of people know about it, but it has to do with the DEA administrator, Ann Milgram, who is the former attorney general in the state of New Jersey. And the DEA is being investigated for awarding no big contracts to hire past associates and friends. So let me read the article. Federal Watchdog is investigating whether the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration under Chief Ann Milgram improperly awarded millions of dollars in no big contracts to hire her past associates, people familiar with the probe told the Associated Press. Among the contract spending under scrutiny by the Justice Department's Office of Inspector General is $4.7 million for strategic planning and communication that was used in part to hire people Milgram knew from her days as New Jersey's Attorney General and as a New York University law professor at cost far exceeding pay for government officials. Now, after Milgram was Attorney General in New Jersey, you may have seen her face as a talking head, I think on MSNBC or CNN or, or both. And so you know she's swampy and you know she's compromised. At least a dozen people have been hired under such contracts, including some in Milgram's inner circle handling intelligence, data analytics, community outreach, and public relations, work often requiring security clearances, and traditionally done by the DEA's own 9,000-person workforce. I know what she did here. She wanted to do some make work for her friends give them $4.7 million contract. And this was work that was traditionally done in-house, but she had to take care of her friends. She had people to take care of. Also under scrutiny is $1.4 million to a Washington law firm for a certain administrative review of the DEA's scandal-plagued foreign operations. That review was co-authored by Boyd Johnson, the former right-hand man to one of Milgram's closest friends, Preet Bharara, when he was the U.S. attorney in Manhattan. Bharara himself landed at the firm, Wilmer Hale, even as the review was being conducted. Some of these deals look really swampy, said Scott Arney, general counsel for the nonpartisan project on government oversight, noting that federal contracting is not intended to bypass the government hiring process and should be conducted with no preferential treatment and avoiding even the appearance of conflict of interest. Contractors are also prohibited from performing inherently governmental functions, such as directing federal employees. And it's a widening inquiry. So there's more to be said on this. But isn't it funny that you've got a former attorney general in New Jersey, the head of the Drug Enforcement Agency, looking to take care of her friends with no-bid contracts. And doing it 
by paying them even more than the staff that you had that was already doing the work. And you know what's really sad about this thing? When Milgram was the attorney general in New Jersey, and she read that something like this was going on, and it was somebody of the opposite party, or someone not in favor of the administration she worked for, dollars to donuts, she would have went after them fully backed by the law of New Jersey. And this is a big problem with attorneys right now. Not all attorneys. They're politicized. Okay, one last story before we go. Um, I just wanted to talk about the IRS whistleblower that said that uh, essentially Merrick Garland is interfering with the IRS investigation into Hunter Biden. Now, Hunter Biden is being investigated for a number of things uh, down in Delaware. And some of it has to do with him not paying his taxes, among other things. So one of the IRS agents that was involved with the investigation said, look, we've got some interference going on, and it's coming from Merrick Garland. I don't think he can name Garland at the time because he wanted to get protections first. But that's where we are today. The swamp continues right now, but your days are numbered. So with that said, I want to thank you for listening. You have a good week, and I will talk to you next Saturday.